0: Risk. Where fear and faith collide. I don't know about you, but I love that video. We've got a great video team around here, and they're so creative. And I'm not sure about you if you were able to maybe identify with one of those big dice that were falling down and and different words were coming across, but I certainly was, and I felt a little convicted. It was the one toward the end that came down, and the box said, or play it safe out of fear. And I just kind of went, ouch! Because if truth be told, I'm a bit of a play it safe kind of guy, play by the rules kind of guy. Now I'd love to sit here today and tell you that I'm just a wild, crazy kind of risk-taking guy. You dare me to do anything, I'm gonna do it. No, I like an adventure as much as the next guy, but I'm usually not the one to initiate the adventure. More of a play it safe guy. And so I had one of those real life fear and faith colliding moments back in January 2009. My family and I were on vacation. We were on the southwest coast of Thailand, one of the most beautiful places in the world. I mean, if you can picture this, beautiful, pristine beaches with aquamarine water surrounded by these huge, beautiful rocky cliffs. Kind of makes you want to go there right now, doesn't it? And uh, even out of the Indian Ocean, there was rising these beautiful islands and rock formations. It was like something out of a dream. It was so lovely. And on one of those days that we were at the beach, I remember Garrison, my second-born son, running up to me. He said, Dad, check it out. There's people jumping off of that cliff into the ocean. Now, he's seven at the time. And he says, Dad, can we do that? (laughs) Uh, And this is where the play at Safe Nature begins to kick in. I said, no, we can't do that. But, Dad, why not? I said, because you're seven. But, Dad, it looks so much fun. I said, it's way too high. Now, it was about 50 feet from the cliff to the water, you know, and maybe for some of you, you're thinking, 50 feet, you know, what's the matter? That's no big deal. But for me, I'm not crazy about heights, and he's seven, I'm thinking, way too high. We're not doing it. He said, but dad, we may never get here again. Can we please do it? He's seven. So I started thinking, and this little voice came inside my head and said, if you're not careful, you're going to kill that adventurous spirit in him. Do you really want him growing up, always playing it safe? So I thought about it for a moment. I said, okay, Garrison, here's what we're gonna do. If I can talk your older brother into doing it, and I knew that his older brother is not a risk taker, then the three of us will do it together. And he said, okay. So I went to find his older brother, Brennan, who was nine at the time. I said, Brennan, see those people jumping off the cliff? You wanna do that? He said, "Uh, okay. That didn't work. So I said, all right, boys, I just need to be safe. I'm going to swim out to where people are landing in the water. I'm going to dive down with my diving mask and make sure that this is deep enough so we don't get hurt when we go in the water. And I was hoping it wasn't deep enough. It was plenty of deep. So now I'm out of excuses. So my boys are looking at me. I said, all right, we're doing this. And then as we navigate our way to the edge of the cliff, we had to go up a a rocky, slippery path. And I remember we had to walk by this massive hole in the ground right beside us. And we kind of looked over the side of the hole, and it dropped about 30 feet to the bottom of a cave and out of the floor of that cave was rising these huge jagged stalagmites just waiting to greet us should we slip and fall. Now some of you are going to have to go and Google stalagmite later, but you go ahead, you know. And so I was thinking to myself, this is nuts. I'm about to get us all killed, but it's too late now. We get to the edge of the cliff and we look over and Garrison, the seven-year-old says, Dad, this is so cool. (laughs) And the nine-year-old says, Dad, I'm scared. I want to go back. I said, sorry, dude. We've come this far. Too late now. We're doing this. I said, ready? We're going to jump on three. One, two, three. And we chickened out. (laughs) No, 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 no. We actually jumped. We did jump, and it felt like forever to actually hit the water. And I remember when I finally hit the water, I went in so deep that I had plenty of time to think about this whole scenario as I was swimming back up to the surface. And I remember the thought going through my head, I'm alive. This was actually kind of fun. But how are my boys? So I'm swimming up to the surface. What do I hear as I break the surface of the water? Garrison, the seven-year-old, is screaming out, dad, dad, I said, Garrison, are you okay? He said, dad, that was totally awesome. Let's do it again. It was totally awesome. And we did do it again, and again, and again. It was so much fun, and you know what? That was a life lesson for me. I'm glad I didn't play it safe. I'm glad I took that risk. You know, our journey with God is a little bit like that. There are times in our journey with God where he asks us to take a risk, to do something that maybe is a little uncomfortable for us or to do something that we don't totally understand, just doesn't make sense or maybe we feel like the stakes are too high to do this. But it's like Mike said last week. He said, you know, God is a very reasonable God And God will never ask us to do anything that doesn't make sense from his perspective. The trick is, we view it from our perspective. And for many of us, we we treat the Christian life like it's some kind of a mathematical equation. If I do this, this will be the result. If I follow this principle, this will happen. If I'm good, I'll be blessed. It's like we see God sitting up in heaven, leaning into us saying, will you do it for one Scooby snack? You know, and we sit back on our hind legs waiting to receive that treat and say, Okay, God. But God doesn't treat us like pets. Now, I know some of you treat your pets like people or like children, you know. Just the other day, I saw a lady walking around a lake near us, and she was pushing her dog in a stroller. I mean, seriously, people. I thought the whole point of taking a dog for a walk was for the dog to walk. I remember thinking to myself, Now, there's something you wouldn't see in Uganda, East Africa. I mean, you rarely see a baby stroller, never mind a doggy stroller. But the point is, God does not see us as his pets. Neither does God want this relationship to be some kind of a master and servant relationship. God sees us as his sons, as his daughters. We're his kids, and he wants us to be in relationship with him. And for that relationship to go deeper, it requires trust. So every once in a while God will say, this is what I want you to do and I'm not gonna give you all the details. In fact, I'm gonna withhold what you consider to be pertinent information. I want you to just trust me on this one. Now I want us to open the Bible and see this principle in a story that appears at the end of 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5 in the Old Testament. As we saw last week, the early part of this chapter is a story about a man named Naaman. And Naaman was a high-ranking military officer in the Aramean army, and the Arameans were the chief enemies of the Israelites. Well, one day, Naaman wakes up and realizes that he is the dreaded disease of leprosy. But he heard that there's some prophet down in Israel that could cure him. So he gets a band of guys together and they travel all the way down to Israel. He goes to see Elisha, the prophet. And Elisha told him, you need to go and dip seven times in the Jordan River, and he would be cured. But Naaman was like us when we don't understand something. He looked at the situation and thought, I don't see the connection. I have leprosy. You're telling me to dip in a dirty river seven times? The dots don't connect. You know, it doesn't make sense at all. But the problem was that Naaman wanted his circumstances changed, but God wanted Naaman changed. Naaman just wanted to get rid of leprosy, but God wanted to impact his entire life But Naaman decided since it wasn't logical to him since it didn't make sense. He wasn't gonna do it So in fact, he was angry about it and he began to take off back for home Fortunately, he had some good guys around him who said wait Wait Naaman listen. What do you have to lose? We're here. Just take the plunge So he finally dipped himself seven times in the Jordan River. And when he came up the last time, he experienced a miracle. He was cured. God performed a miracle in his life. But this is where the story changes its focus from Naaman to Gehazi, the servant of Elisha. So after Naaman dips and after he's healed from the leprosy, he goes back to Elisha's house to say thank you. And I want us to pick it up in verse 15, 2 Kings chapter 5. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Notice he didn't say, Now I know I have been healed of leprosy. Because God did more than just heal him of leprosy. God changed his life. God changed his worldview. So he says, Now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Please accept now a gift from your servant. And do you remember what the gift was? You can go back to verse 5 and see. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver. That's worth a half million dollars. 6,000 shekels of gold, $4 million worth of gold. And 10 sets of clothing. Probably Hugo Boss or Dolce & Gabbana, whatever you choose, you know. And then in verse 15, please accept now a gift or this gift from your servant. Pretty nice gift, right? I mean, who here wouldn't want to wake up on Christmas morning and receive a gift like that? And so Gehazi, Elisha's servant, is standing over to the side watching this happen and he begins to sing to himself, Today is the day you have made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. He's thinking, our ship has finally come in. And you know, this stuff meant nothing to Naaman. He was loaded. He had plenty. But when you are the servant of a prophet who's poor, that makes you dirt poor. So we can understand why Gehazi was so excited But notice Elisha's response in verse 16. The prophet answered, as surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. So Gehazi is now standing over to the side with his jaw on the floor. You said what? I mean, we saved this man's life. And we can't even accept a token of gratitude from a guy who can obviously afford it? Skip down to verse 19. After Naaman had traveled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, My master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, by not accepting from him what he brought. And here's where Gehazi's greed kicks in in verse 20. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. As surely as the Lord lives... That's the exact same phrase his master Elisha had just used moments earlier when he said, as surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. You know, it would have been wise for Gehazi to take a lead, to take a cue from his master. But no, instead he says, as surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something. In other words, Gehazi is thinking, maybe Elisha didn't feel led to take some of that. But I think God is leading me to go get a little something for myself. You know what I'm saying? So Gehazi begins to rationalize his actions. And we get it. Who of us have never rationalized before? I know I'm a master of rationalization. He's beginning to think, this man's been healed from leprosy. He just wants to say thank you. Or this guy is loaded. He's worth millions. If he didn't have it to spare, he wouldn't offer it. It's only right that we accept at least something of what he brought. I mean, he had to carry it all the way here. All of that silver, all of that gold, it's got to be heavy. I'm just helping a brother out. Or maybe he thought, Elisha didn't even consult me on this one. I mean, I've been a good servant for years, but I can't remember the last time Elisha gave me a raise. And before we're too hard on Gehazi, most of us are masters of rationalization. I know I am. And it's easy for us to sit back as an armchair quarterback and to make judgment calls for everyone else's wrong decisions. You know, we see famous people make these ridiculous decisions and we think, well, that's just dumb, or I would never do that. Or we think, if I had been there, I would have given him some good advice. You know, it's easy for us to make wise decisions for other people, for our family members, for our friends, our coworkers, and then we give them advice and we sit back and if they make the wrong decision, we become the king of, I told you so, I told you so. It even happened this week with the director of the CIA as we watched his life unravel. Maybe we had those judgmental thoughts. How could he ever do that? But you know, that's actually a good question. How could you ever get to that point in your life where would you, you would make poor decisions like that? Somehow, little by little, day by day, they were able to rationalize their decisions and their actions. But the truth is we all find ourselves in precarious situations. When our kids drive us to the edge, you know they're driving us nuts and you wanna make them a part of the wallpaper and you have to calm down and decide how am I going to deal with this situation. When we're watching TV and a commercial comes on and we see that shiny new SUV that we know it's not in our budget but we begin to justify it and rationalize and think but honey it even gets 40 miles to the gallon but it's not in our budget, what are we gonna do? When we're traveling far away from home and a pretty blonde catches our eye and she winks at us, and for a split moment we think, will anyone ever really know? What are we gonna do? When we didn't study enough for the exam and you're sitting next to the smart kid, are you gonna sneak a peek or just deal with the consequences? And so we start to rationalize, little by little, day by day, We say, God, I know I'm not supposed to be getting serious about this guy because he's not a Christ follower, but if I stay in this relationship, I can help him become a Christ follower. Have you thought of that, God? Or how about this one? God, I know you don't want me to get out of this marriage, but have you really thought about this? I can get out of this family and start a new family, and in that new family, we're going to raise Christian kids and do everything just right. What do you think, God? Or maybe we've said, God, I don't want to give you my whole life right now. I mean, right now I'm young, I'm single, I'm in college. You only get one go around. So I'm just going to enjoy my life for the next few years. But God, when I get married, that's when I'm going to settle down. I'm going to get serious about you. Then I'll give you my whole life. What do you think? You know, we negotiate. We rationalize with God as if God's going to say, wow, I never thought of that. I'm glad you've enlightened me. Thank you for sharing your perspective with me. I mean, think of Gehazi. He even brought God into it. God, as surely as the Lord lives, I'm gonna run. In other words, God, help me to run after this guy, chase him down, and to get what's mine. God, I'll even tithe off of what he gives me. Sound familiar? And what's interesting is that our plan always looks better and makes more sense on paper. And the natural tendency is to go with our plan instead of going with God's plan. And that's why we rationalize, because we think it removes guilt. We think it gives us permission to do what we want to do instead of what God wants us to do. But what it boils down to is this, God, I just don't trust you. God, if you'll just give me a glimpse into the future and I can see how this whole thing will play out, then I'm in, then I'll trust you. But what we're really saying is, God, you're not enough. God, don't take it personally, but I trust my ability to reason more than I trust you. But God's response is always, sorry, you're just gonna have to trust me on this one. And Gehazi wasn't there yet. He was watching his whole future slip away, or so he thought. Let's pick it up in verse 21. So Gehazi hurried after Naaman. When Naaman saw him running toward him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. Is everything all right, he asked. Everything is all right, Gehazi answered, and he lies. My master sent me to say, two young men from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. Now you can say what you want about Gehazi, but he was creative. I mean, it sounded so spiritual to say that these gifts were for a couple of prophets in training. You know, Naaman, these young guys who are training to be prophets, they never have enough. They can never make ends meet. And wouldn't they look sharp in a brand-new suit or sport coat? But think about it. Everything wasn't all right. Elisha hadn't sent him. There weren't two young men from prophet university. The silver and the clothes were for Gehazi, and he knew it, you know? Verse 23, by all means, take two talents, said Naaman, and he urged Gehazi to accept them. I'm sure he didn't have to urge too hard. And then he tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing. He gave them to two of his servants, and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. Then Gehazi came to the hill. He took the things from the servants and put them away in the house. And at this point, he's probably thinking, I actually pulled this off. He sent the men away, and they left. Then he went in and stood before his master, Elisha. Where have you been, Gehazi, Elisha asked. Ouch, the moment of truth. It's kind of like when you skip school. Sorry, I know none of you ever skip school. Or, or that time that you snuck away from home to go where you knew you weren't supposed to be. And you get home, and you're greeted with that dreaded question, where have you been? And you get that sick feeling in the pit of your stomach. You gotta know that this is how Gehazi was feeling at this moment. And so in verse 25, he responds, Your servant didn't go anywhere. Really? Is that the best you can come up with? Your servant didn't go anywhere? See, that's the problem with lying. It always takes many other lies to cover up the first initial lie. Your servant didn't go anywhere. I've been here all along. You know, we read about Gehazi, and maybe we think, this guy wasn't very bright. But I'm not sure we're very bright either all the time. I mean, we have a God who knows us better than we know ourselves. Think of this. We have a God who loves us and has our best interest in mind. We have a God who gave his only son so that we could have a relationship with him. But sometimes we just don't get it. We just don't trust him. Now, Elisha wasn't fooled. And the consequences that follow are tragic. Verse 26. But Elisha said to him, Was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? And Gehazi is thinking, this could be bad. Is this the time to take money? Skip down to verse 27. Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence and he was leprous as white as white as snow so he finally got it it finally made sense to him you know maybe he was thinking oh now I get it Elisha you didn't heal Naaman it wasn't us who healed Naaman it was God and you're right now is not the time to accept money or gifts because it's God who needs to get the credit not us now I get it so it finally came together for him but it was too late and I'm sure many of us Could stand up here and tell of a time we knew that God wanted us to do something, but we didn't do it. Or a time when we knew that God wanted us not to do something. And we disobeyed and went ahead and did it anyway. And how we wish we could go back, but you can't turn back the clock. We can't go back. But thankfully, God is not standing there waiting for us to mess up. He does not strike us down every time we disobey Him. The Bible says that God is incredibly patient. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in love. But there comes a point when each of us have to decide, will I trust God or will I choose not to trust Him? And there comes a point where not trusting God bites us. But there's also a point where trusting God will pay off. But there's always that point always that moment of decision. It's that moment we either decide to tighten our grip on the circumstances or to give up control to God. And those that choose to trust God at that point, even when they don't understand why, will be able to breathe a sigh of relief. And those that don't trust God at that moment will live with regret. I mean, I often wonder about Gehazi. There probably wasn't a day in the rest of his life where he didn't look back and think back on that day and regret that decision. It makes me wonder, what was his life meant to be? I mean, what was God's original plans for Gehazi? When you think of it, he was the servant of Elisha, the greatest prophet in Israel in that day. And if you know the story of Elisha, Elisha had also been the servant of another prophet named Elisha, the greatest prophet before him. And when it came to the end of Elijah's life, God chose to give Elisha, because he had been faithful, chose to give Elisha a double portion or a double amount of the blessing and the anointing that had been on the life of Elijah. So what was God's original plans for Gehazi? And we'll never know. While there may be days There may be decisions in your life that you regret, that you think back on and you'll never forget, but the good news is this, God is a God of second and third and fourth and fifth chances. God is a God of new beginnings and today is a new day. It's not too late to do the right thing. So what do we do? How do we respond to this? Well this relationship with God it's a lot like any other relationship we're in and in other relationships that we're in often we don't trust people because we don't know them that well I mean can you imagine walking up to a complete stranger on the road and saying excuse me sir I don't know you I don't even know your name but here I want to give you my ATM card and here's my pin go and do what you want I mean would we do that we would never do that why because we don't trust him he's a stranger why don't we trust him because we don't know Him. And it's very similar in our relationship with God. Often we don't trust God because we haven't taken the opportunity to really get to know Him. So what do we do? We get to know who God is. Get to know who God is. And start by showing up at church, which you've done, thank you. But you know, every time we gather, for a service like this we sing songs of worship to God and about God we hear messages that tell us about who he is and helps us to understand life from his perspective we get to more to, to know God better by coming to church join a small group journey together with another group of people who are also getting to know God better you'll see God at work in their lives and you'll begin to understand how God is at work and more about him and also I mean it sounds simple but read your Bible it's all about him. It's all about his love for us, all about his great plans and purposes for our life. And by the way, it's the greatest book ever written. The next biggest reason why we don't trust God is because we've been let down by others. We've been let down by our parents, by our friends, by our relatives and coworkers, by our boyfriends and our girlfriends. We've even been let down by pastors. Can you imagine? But it happens, and when that happens, it makes us a little bit leery to trust someone else, maybe even God. And if that's you, I want to encourage you to begin trusting God in one area of your life. Just choose one area of your life and begin to trust Him in that area. Proverbs 3, 5-6 to 6 says this, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek His will in all you do, and He will show you which path to take. So what is that one area? Maybe God is asking you to trust Him today by beginning to give of your resources, trusting Him with your finances. Maybe it's time for you to begin tithing. You've been coming to church for years and you've heard about this tithing thing. God is saying it's time to start. Or maybe for you, you've been tithing regularly and faithfully for years and you know that the blessing that comes with that, but you heard Mike talk last week about this This. Um, Christmas offering we're having on the 15th and 16th of December and we want to raise a half million dollars for what God is doing here locally and what he's doing around the world and we're asking you to give sacrificially and maybe just this last week God just placed a number a figure in your head or in your heart and said here's what I want you to sacrifice this Christmas here's what I want you to give and you've been trying to shake that off thinking that couldn't have been God that's too high you know that must have been bad pizza or something but don't rationalize Trust God. Maybe God is asking you to trust Him by beginning to serve in a new ministry. Or maybe God is asking you to trust Him today by committing or recommitting to your marriage. Or maybe God is asking you to trust Him today by forgiving someone who hurt you badly. You've been hanging on for years to this anger and bitterness and hurt, and He's saying, please, let it go. Forgive this person. You're gonna feel so much, but trust Him. Or maybe today... God is actually asking you to trust him with your entire life. Maybe you're not yet a Christ follower. You've been around here for a while, as Mike says, kicking the tires of Christianity, checking things out, and we're glad you're here. But maybe today God is saying, it's time for you to trust me with your life. It's time for you to surrender your life to me. So what is he asking you to surrender to him? What is he asking you to trust him with? And I want to encourage you to take that risk and trust God. I began today by telling you I'm not by nature much of a risk taker and you know when I look back on my life thus far I think that that's why God has pushed me and my family to make some pretty big moves in life because I wouldn't have done it naturally. So he's testing my faith, he's seeing if I'll be obedient. I remember I was a worship pastor in a great church in Canada for years and uh, in 2004, 2005 we had just had our third child and kind of knew, you know, that's, that's it now. We're gonna turn off that tap and just enjoy our three kids. And, and then God began to stir in our hearts. I want you to pick up your family. I want you to say goodbye to your family and your friends and your church and I want you to move to Africa to serve me in Uganda. And you know, he didn't give us all the details. He just said, this is what I want you to do. And we decided to trust him and to be obedient. And when I look back on those seven and a half years and I think of the enormous challenges that we had to go through at times, I'm not sure if I knew then those challenges, maybe I wouldn't have made that step of faith. So I'm glad I didn't know all the details. But standing on this side of that journey, when I look back and not only see the challenges, but I look back and I see the incredible rewards, you know, God honored that decision of trust and faithfulness, and he blessed our ministry. He allowed us to be a part of a great church, Wototo Church, that grew enormously in those years that we were there, and he allowed us to be a part of raising the next generation of Ugandan leaders. Such an incredible ministry, and he allowed us to fall in love with Uganda and the Ugandan people. It was so rewarding, and I wouldn't change it for the world. But just as we're getting used to Uganda, just as we're beginning to put roots down there, God begins to stir in our hearts again about a year ago said, get ready, get ready. I'm moving you back to North America. And at first, I was like, what? God, this, Really? really? I mean, I thought that we were gonna serve you somewhere in the world on the mission field for the rest of our lives. I mean, we're not really missing North America that much. God says, I want you to be obedient. And as he began to just unfold this bit by bit, he began to show us that he was taking us to Hope Community Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. I mean, I'm from... Canada, I was born and raised in Toronto, Ontario. And I did my schooling in Minnesota. So I'm not used to the south and it's pretty scary for a northern boy. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> but actually we're loving it. But I wish I could tell you I know all the details. I wish I could say I know all of the reasons why I'm here but I don't know the end of this journey. I can't sit here like Mike said last week and say after 19 years I can see God's faithfulness. I trust that one day I'll be able to say that but we're at the beginning of this new part of the journey. But how did we make that decision? Because we know who God is and we trust who God is and he has always proven faithful to my wife and I, to our family and that's the great thing about God. He will never let you down. He will never disappoint you. So over the years I have heard story after story from people who've decided to trust in themselves instead of trusting in God and rarely does it end well. It doesn't matter if it's in Africa or America, we're all human. And at the end of the day, it becomes really simple. You either trust God or you don't. And when you do, you're relieved. And when you don't, you wish you had. So I wanna ask each one of you, what is God banging on your heart about today? What has God been on your case about lately? What's that one area? What is it that you have been trying to rationalize away What have you been saying no to God about? And what is it God is trying to get you, asking you today to trust Him for? Why don't you just decide, I'm going to trust God. Walk up to the edge of that cliff and take that leap of faith. Let's bow and pray. God, in this life that we live, there are so many uncertainties. And those uncertainties crowd in on us and they take away our confidence in who we are. They take away our confidence in who you are. But God, I want to thank you for reminding us today that you are constant. You are unchanging. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And your word tells us and promises us that you will never change, that you are faithful, that your mercy is, is new every single morning and it's enough for us for that day. So God, I pray that you would infuse us with a new sense of courage today to begin to trust you in that one area that you are asking us. Lord, I I know that you're working in each heart here right now and you're showing us specifically what it is you're asking us to trust you for. And God, I pray you would give us that confidence in who you are. Give us that courage that we can step up to the edge of that cliff and take that leap of faith and allow our lives to shine for you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for not giving up on us. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.